Well, good morning, Park Hills. I hope everyone is enjoying a happy new year already, even as you're here worshiping with God's people this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. While you make your way over there, I just want to uh, say, as was mentioned already by, by Ryan just a moment ago, uh, my, my wife and my three young kids were unable to join me here this morning, but uh, they wish they were here with me, and they send their greetings uh, to you all as well. I also just want to say how glad I am to be here with you all. I've had the joy of, of worshiping with the saints here at Park Hills before, uh, just as you all did for my church this morning, and you prayed for me, and that's a joy, by the way, such a blessing to hear that. Uh, we do the same for you all. We love this church. We are thankful for you all. We are thankful that the gospel is being preached here and being lived out uh, by you all. And so it's a joy. I'm excited to be able to come and, and worship with you, to sing God's praises with you, and now to be able to open up God's word with you. So uh, James chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 10 during our time together this morning. So let me read the text for us, James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that is found in your word. We pray that you would impart more of your wisdom to us this morning as we study James together. I ask that you would use this text for the good of your people. Pray that you would use this text to challenge those uh, who need to be challenged, even to rebuke some who, who need to be rebuked. And yet I ask that you would use this passage to encourage your people, to encourage the faint hearted, those who need to have their their faith strengthened this morning. Would you do that? Give us understanding of what we read and help us to apply the truth of your word to our hearts so that we may be doers of what we hear this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The Bible often depicts the the relationship of, of God and his people as a marriage. God is often depicted as the husband and his people as the bride. And when we come to faith in Christ and we become part of the body of Christ, We are called the bride of Christ. It is a beautiful picture. Paul even writes about how uh, marriage on this earth is meant to be a picture of Christ and his love for his bride, the church. We see this played out in a striking way in the book of Hosea. 
There God calls the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Hosea marries and loves and pursues an unfaithful bride. And what we see is a beautiful picture of God's love for his people. What we're meant to take away from Hosea is actually, though we don't always think this or understand this immediately, what we're meant to take away is that we are Gomer. We are the unfaithful bride who has gone after other lovers, and yet God does not throw us out. He does not cast us to the side and find a better bride or a more lovely bride. No, he continues to love us. He continues to pursue us. He remains faithful and loves us despite our often unfaithfulness. As we come to James chapter 4 this morning, it's important to understand that James is picking off picking up where he has left off in chapter 3. So to give just a little bit of context, in chapter 3, James talks about our jealousy and our selfish ambitions. Then he says that they will lead to disorder into every vile practice. Then he commends peacemaking and righteousness in the church. Now as we turn to chapter 4 this morning, I I just want you to know, as you've probably even heard and seen in the text that I've just read this morning, there are some hard things in this passage. It's, it's challenging. At times it will be very convicting. It will be hard. But I think, brothers and sisters, you'll also find, I hope and I pray, a lot of encouragement. And uh, that this passage will be rewarding for you if you stick with me this morning. But as we turn to chapter 4, we'll see that James begins by addressing conflict in the church. And as he begins to address a situation where peacemaking and wisdom is needed... These verses help us to think about conflict, to be sure, but there's much more going on here than just some some tips on how to handle conflict. This passage is about spiritual adultery. It's about us being Gomer and God pursuing us by his grace. He begins with conflict, but James will go from there to address our passions, to address our hearts, and ultimately to help us see where we may be falling short of wholehearted devotion to God. So brothers and sisters, this passage is about your heart, and it's about God's heart for you. God wants your heart. He wants your wholehearted devotion. He wants you to be satisfied in him because he is a faithful God who loves you. He will expose to you where you are seeking satisfaction elsewhere. He will expose to you the idolatry of your heart so that you can repent and return to him. So... This is the main point of what I think we'll see in in the passage this morning. God is after your wholehearted devotion to him. That's the point of our passage. Because God is after your wholehearted devotion, he pursues you. And we'll see three specific ways he pursues you in this text. First of all, God exposes the desires of your heart. So look again at verse 1 of chapter 4. That's where we'll see the first point. God exposes the desires of your heart. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now notice where James begins. He begins with a question, and his question is assuming that quarrels and fights were taking place among them. He doesn't ask if they're having any conflicts. It's already assumed they were having conflicts. Now, in earlier chapters, James writes at length about the destructiveness of our tongues. And then he talks about worldly wisdom, which is marked by jealousy and selfish ambition. And instead of peace, what it brings about is disorder in the church. 
So James is asking, those conflicts that are happening in that church, what's causing them to happen? And then he immediately supplies the answer, it's your passions. It's your passions are at war within you. What we see in in the first two verses is that God gives us windows into our heart. and, And conflict is actually one of those windows that allows us to see into our hearts to see what's going on at the heart level inside of each and every one of us. So just think for a minute about the last conflict that you had with another person. I understand lots of people in this room, some of you, it, it may have been a, a complete blow-up situation where you were, you know, obvious conflict was going on. For some of you, it may have been something much less obvious and outward, but still, we all have conflict in our lives. Just think about the last conflict you had with another person. What caused that conflict to happen? Most of us can probably think of something that someone else said to us, the way that they treated us, the way that they said what they said. That's probably where our minds will tend to go. But notice, James points where? To our hearts. What causes quarrels and fights among you is that your passions are at war within you. In order to understand why conflicts exist outwardly, In our relationships, we must look to the war that is going on inside of each of us. This is what Paul refers to in Galatians 5 when he says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a battle going on inside of of each of us. There is a Uh, If you're tuned into your heart at all, you're familiar with this. We all have sin that remains in our hearts, and we have to wage war, don't we? We have to wage war on the desires of our flesh. James tells us more about this battle in our hearts in verse 2. And notice the, the frustrated desires that he describes. He says, "You you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, you want things, and you don't always get the things that you want, so what happens? You become frustrated, and as a result of your frustrated desires, you sin. Frustrated desires are at the root of our sinful conflict. And just think about marriage for a second. Husbands and wives, you have desires for what your marriage should look like, for things that your spouse should do or should not do. You have desires, perhaps, for how many kids you should have, uh, for what kind of home you should live in, what kind of food you should eat, how you should spend your money. And these desires sometimes become frustrated desires, don't they? Singles, you may have good desires to find a husband or a wife and to get married, and those desires can become frustrated desires if your heart longs for that and it's not happening, at least not according to your timetable. You may desire to find a better job. You may desire to make more money to provide for your family. You may desire to find a better place to live. Even good desires can become sinful ones when they begin to rule your heart. And one way, brothers and sisters, that you can know that a desire is actually ruling your heart is when you realize you are willing to sin in order to get it. But James has been talking about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the verses leading right up to these. I think he has selfish desires in mind. He says in verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I think James has in mind selfish ambitions, self-centered desires. 
He's just highlighting how our passions and our frustrated desires affect our relationships with one another. The fighting and quarreling, the conflicts begin with us wanting what other people have. You may wish you had someone else's position or their status or even their ministry in the church. You may wish you had their sense of style or their family or their job or their popularity or their influence. But this, James says, is where conflicts come from. Fights and quarrels are born when you want something and you're not getting it and you become frustrated. But not only that, you're not satisfied. You're wanting more. You're not satisfied with the life that God has given you. You're not satisfied as you compare to what others have and and how others seem to be doing. Notice, did did you notice the language that James used in the first part of verse 2? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. (laughs) Now that should grab our attention. Is James saying that someone in the church actually got in a fight with another person and then murdered them? That sounds ridiculous to us, I think, at first glance, but I don't think we should just immediately dismiss that as a possibility. I mean, after all, we can become so frustrated with someone or, or something that doesn't go the way that we want it to that it's not impossible to conceive of someone's frustration leading them to commit murder. We also ought to keep in mind that what James's, ha- James's half-brother Jesus taught about murder happening at the heart level so that in our anger, in our hatred of another person, we end up murdering them with our words and do everything in our power to destroy them and to demean them and to slander them and to bring them down. Here's how I think we should probably think about what, what James is saying here. If you want something bad enough and you don't get it, and you become so frustrated, so angry that it consumes you, if you give yourself over to your sinful passion and let that play out, if those frustrated desires are not restrained and put in check, then hypothetically speaking, it could eventually lead to murder. Our passions are at war within us, and all of this is happening at the heart level. These passions and this dissatisfaction are the cause of our conflicts. And sadly, brothers and sisters, conflicts can and do happen in the church. If we were truly satisfied in God, then we wouldn't be frustrated. We wouldn't be comparing ourselves to everyone else, and these conflicts wouldn't take place. Conflict with other people provides a window into our hearts that allows us to see what's going on in our hearts. Another way to see what's going on in our hearts is to look at your prayer life. James brings up prayer at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Here James begins to shift away from our relationships with, with other people to our relationships with God, to our relationship with God. And James says, essentially, you're not going to God in prayer. Prayerlessness is a sign that you're trusting in yourself and your ability to do things in your own strength. Rather than asking for God's help with your frustrated desires or asking him to provide good gifts, you're you're not even going to him in prayer. You're just trying to handle things on your own. Prayerlessness reveals that a person is not depending upon God. You're, You're really living as a functional atheist if you are not praying. You may say that you have a relationship with God, that you know him, but serious questions should be raised at the very least if you do not pray. This reveals an an unhealthy relationship with God at at the least. 
All is not right if you do not pray, if you do not talk to the God that you claim to know and love and serve, and if you do not depend upon him in prayer, even as we just saw Jesus model for us in the, in the Lord's Prayer that we read earlier together. Prayerlessness is another window into our heart. It is a clear indicator of, of spiritual unhealth. Look at what James adds in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, James is saying you don't, <laughs> again, this is, he's addressing someone who appears to be prayerless. You don't normally pray. Your life has become about you following the selfish desires of your heart. And if you need help with those, then you may try to use God to get the things that you're really after, to get what you think that God can give, give you. He's just a means to your end. And of course, when your prayers are driven by your selfish desires, prayers that are contrary even to the will of God, he's not going to give you what you're asking for. James is giving us x-ray glasses that allow us to see what's going on at the heart level. Because God is after our wholehearted devotion. He exposes the desires of our hearts and what we find is selfishness. And now he's going to expose the loyalties of our hearts. That brings us to our second point. God exposes the loyalties of our hearts. James gets to the point in verse 4, and he, he doesn't mince words. He says, you adulterous people. Now, those are strong words. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James begins with a passionate rebuke. Keep in mind, he's just talked about the unhealth of your relationship with God if there is prayerlessness. And the unhealth that exists if you then come running to the God that you don't normally talk to just to get things from him. Now remember, James is writing to Christians. But he has seen some things, if you're familiar with the letter of James, he has seen some things that he's concerned about. He sees partiality. He sees worldly wisdom. He sees brothers and sisters who are using their tongues to inflict pain and harm on one another. He sees a lack of peace and unity. He sees conflict driven by selfishness. And now he makes it plain that what these things amount to is worldliness. And we need to be clear. James is not saying that we should not be friends with people in the world. That's not the issue. And that's not what he's calling us to stay away from. He's concerned that these selfish desires in, these, in our hearts and these outward behaviors are rooted in us adopting and following the values of this world rather than following God. He's trying to help us understand. If you are pursuing your own worldly passions, if your commitment is to yourself and to your own interest of following your own sinful passions, then you're pursuing friendship with the world and your heart is divided. God does not have your full devotion. But he even goes beyond that to say that if you are wishing to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. As I said earlier, there are many places in Scripture and in the Old Testament in particular where God is said to be the husband of his people and his people are said to be the bride. We see it in texts like, like Isaiah 54 where it says, Your maker is your husband. 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast, cast off, says your God. And the picture that we see again and again is God as the faithful husband and his people as the unfaithful bride. God faithfully loves his bride and pursues his bride. And we are the one who has given herself to other lovers time and time again. And this is what the Bible intends for us to feel. And this is what James intends for us to feel. So imagine with me for just a second, maybe as you sit here today, you're married, maybe you're not married, but imagine for a second that you are a recently married person. You are a newlywed, you just married your husband or wife, and you are filled with excitement as you return home from your honeymoon, and then just a couple of days later, you make the tragic discovery that your spouse is having an affair. This is the level of betrayal that we are meant to read, that we are meant to feel when we read the words, You adulterous people. Only the betrayal is our unfaithfulness to God. James is saying, your allegiance has been to yourself. You have taken the system of the world, which is opposed to God, and you have replaced God with the world. The world is now your friend. It is where you find satisfaction and joy. It is what you're running to. God will expose the desires of our heart so that we can see our selfishness and he will expose the loyalties of our heart so that we can see our spiritual adultery. So brothers and sisters, let me just ask you this morning as you turn the page on a new year, as you look at the year in front of you, are you chasing the same things that the world chases? Let me plead with you to examine the desires of your heart and ask yourself some hard questions, even as you, as you begin this new year. Do you see selfishness at the root of what you think about, what you pray about, what you say to others, and how you interact with others? If you are a person who is experiencing a lot of conflict, could it be that your own selfish ambition is causing those conflict with others? Where is your heart? Do you desire the things of God? Do you desire to see his name made famous? Do you long for the good of God's people and to serve and to be a blessing to others? Or is your heart ruled by worldly desires? What what is it that you are chasing after, thinking about, praying about? God demands our all and he deserves our all. And brothers and sisters, he is jealous for us. Look what he says next in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Now this is a difficult verse to interpret. And depending upon what translation of the Bible you have, it may be worded slightly different from what I just read. But I think the general sense of what James is communicating here, the big idea is clear. He's saying God is jealous for us. When we betray him and look to other things to find our satisfaction and our joy, he's saying God is jealous for us. When we decide to pursue our own way, he is jealous for us. We tend to have a pretty negative understanding of jealousy in, in, our, in our day and age, and it's understandable. But jealousy isn't always bad. In the context of a marriage, if a husband really loves his wife, he will be jealous for her. He will be unwilling to share her with another person. 
And God is unwilling to share us with another. God demands our total allegiance. He wants us to have undivided hearts that love him above all else. And when we turn our backs on him and settle on lesser worldly things, he yearns jealously for us to respond to his love with full devotion to him. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. Some of you, I think, just need to hear that this morning, and you just need to be reminded of that truth from Scripture. God loves you. He is jealous for you. He's not indifferent to your sin. He yearns jealously over you that you would return to him if you have been flirting with the world. He wants you to forsake all others. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we know we've all been unfaithful somewhere along the way, haven't we? We've all shown partiality. We've all sinned with our tongues. We've all pursued pleasure and satisfaction in the things of this world. We have fallen short of God's demands, so what are we to do? God is after your wholehearted devotion, so he will expose your heart's selfish desires and he will uncover your spiritual adultery. And this is all God's grace and his kindness that he would show these things to us. And finally, in verses 6 through 10, we'll see the third point. Because God is after your wholehearted devotion, number three, his grace calls you to return to him. His grace calls you to return to him. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. I'm sure you've heard it said before, but I'll say it again. Buts in the Bible are really important. Up to this point in the letter of James, he has essentially helped us to see that we fail to do all the things that he's called us to do. And his rebuke is particularly strong when he calls his readers adulterers. We would even be crushed under the weight of God's expectation for us to be devoted to him were it not for what comes here in verse 6. God yearns jealously for you to have an undivided heart. He demands your total allegiance, but you've failed. And here's the good news that God speaks to you through James. God says, I know that you've sinned, but I give more grace. I've heard every sinful word that you've spoken, but I give more grace. I know every sinful thought, every time you've harbored hatred for another person in your heart, every time your heart has been filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, every time you've coveted things that don't belong to you, but I give more grace. I know about all those days when you didn't even speak to me or crack open your Bible, but I give more grace. I know everything about you. I know the worst thing you've ever done, the things that you've never told anyone. I know it all. From the little white lies that you've told to your deepest, darkest secrets, God says, I know you. I know how unfaithful you've been. I know all of the details, and my love for you has not wavered. I give you more grace. The grace of God in sending his son to die for us is what God speaks to us in this passage to call us to return to him. What calls us home is the reminder that God did not withhold his only son, but he gave him up for us while we were sinners. Christ paid the price that we owed for our idolatry, for our friendship with the world, for our spiritual adultery. 
And God says to the one who has pursued pleasure and satisfaction in the world, to the one who has sought other lovers, other gods, nothing can separate you from my love for you in Christ Jesus. So come home. Return to me. James adds in the rest of verse 6, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God's grace is for the humble. Don't miss that. God's grace is for the humble. The proud set themselves up in opposition to God. You can't be friends with the world and friends with God. You must choose. God's grace is for the humble, so you must submit yourself to God. There is grace that forgives, but this grace is also the grace that changes us. This forgiving grace, this friendship with God moves us to repent and it transforms us so that we live our lives not for ourselves, but for God, for for the God who yearns jealously for the hearts of his people. So if you have been wishing to be a friend of the world, if you have been pursuing your own selfish desires, God calls you to return to him, and the road home begins with repentance. And this repentance involves humbling yourself and submitting yourself to God. Submit your desires to God. Submit to God's kingdom rather than living for your own kingdom. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself today. And submit to your king and you will receive grace. This final section is is really a call to repentance. If you have been prayerless, humble yourself before the Lord. I would encourage you to even do it right this very moment. You can just pray something like, God, I am sorry. I, I have sinned against you. I love you. I need you. Thank you for Jesus who washes away my sin. Please help me. Please change me. And please cause me to start depending upon you in prayer today. We also need to pray for God's help as we battle our sinful desires. Ask God for the power not to act on them and to deliver you from them. We know that the devil will entice us to indulge our sinful desires and to give ourselves over to them. So James says in the second half of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James mentions the devil here for a reason. We need to understand that worldly living, indulging your flesh, living for yourself, pursuing your sinful passions... Brothers and sisters, it's all really demonic. We need to be aware of the devil. We don't want to pretend like he doesn't exist. He is very real. And let me remind us, when when our lives are marked by selfish ambition, we look very much like Satan. And he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yet we do not need to live in fear of Satan, looking for him under every single rock, afraid of when he might show up. James says, resist him and he will flee from you. But the key here is resist him. If you indulge your flesh, if you give in to sin, if you hide your sin, you are not resisting him. In a real sense, you are inviting him to wreak havoc. Resist him, James says, and he will flee from you. And brothers and sisters, remember that the power that is inside of you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the power that is in the world, the devil. We need to put on the armor of God and battle Satan with the word of God, just as Jesus modeled for us during his earthly ministry. 
In order to resist Satan, we also need to come to God. So James says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a call to, to turn back to God, to run back to him and he will welcome you. The parable of the prodigal son pictures this for us really well. The son leaves home and he squanders his property and he reaches the end of himself and he finally returns home to his father. The son knows he's been unfaithful. He knows he has royally messed everything up in his life. He returns home in humility and brokenness, understanding that he is a train wreck and he has nowhere else to return, nowhere else to go. The father doesn't ridicule him and scold him. He doesn't give him the silent treatment. The father runs to him when he sees him coming. He embraces him and he kisses him. The son responds by telling his father, I am no longer worthy to even be called your son. Please just treat me, treat me as one of your servants. But the father has been jealously yearning for his son to come back to him and he is filled with joy that his son has finally returned home. This is a joyous occasion for the father. It is a time for celebration that his child has finally come back home. His embrace and his kiss are meant to picture for us how God welcomes us when we return home to him. God exposes our hearts. He exposes our selfish desires and he exposes our spiritual adultery. But he does all of this, brothers and sisters, to call us to return to him, to call us home. And when you do come home, he runs to you and he embraces you. And he kisses you, just as a father kisses the son he's missed, to remind you that you are still his child. You will always be his child. He has longed for your heart to return to him, and he is thrilled to wrap his arms around you. No matter how far you've wandered away from God, and how long you've turned from him, as you draw near to him, God draws near to you. As we turn to God, we also turn from our sins. Look at the rest of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Keep in mind that before chapter 4, it's just some helpful context to understand here. James usually referred to the people to whom he was writing as brothers. So I think they may have been a bit startled now to hear James address them in the way he does in this part of the letter. He calls them adulterous people, and now he refers to them as sinners and as double-minded people. James gives them the gospel of grace. He shows them how God's grace is sufficient, even for hearts that are wanting to be friends of the world. But he clearly rebukes them and calls them to repentance and reminds them that God's grace will not leave them where they are. It should lead them to repentance. It should lead them to humble themselves. God's grace calls us to return to God and it transforms our hearts from living for ourselves to living our lives for the God who made us and finding our satisfaction in him. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This shows that James is calling for a radical repentance that involves the entire person. Our hands and our heart, our attitudes, our actions... Double-mindedness calls to attention once more their attempt to be friends with the world and with God at the same time. And this is what 
God will not tolerate. He will not share us with another. He will not have us be double-minded. He wants your heart. He wants your complete devotion. The partiality, the prayerlessness, the damage we've done with our tongues, perhaps, the conflict that we've stirred up with others, the ways we've embraced this world and lived for this world, the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that we've walked in. James is calling us to turn away from those external behaviors and also from the internal attitudes that have led to those behaviors. Turning to God includes rejecting our sin, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts, and making it known that our allegiance is with God and joyfully submitting to him in all things. True repentance will also include grieving over our sin at times. Look at verse 9. It says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now once more, James gets our attention here. I think it's important that we understand what, what James is not saying here. He's not saying that Christians should be walking around through life without any joy or laughter or fun or excitement. No, we were created to enjoy God, to be satisfied by him. There are pleasures forevermore in his presence. And the people of God, brothers and sisters, you should enjoy each other's company as you fellowship and enjoy the family that God has given you and the good gifts that God has given to you to enjoy. Yet we're reminded, when we're reminded of what lengths God went to secure our salvation, that the reason we have mercy and forgiveness and the reason we can draw near to God and to enjoy him is because his son hung on a cross and received the wrath of God in our place. When we remember that our sin is the reason Jesus had to die, And when we come face to face with our sin, when we feel the weight of our sin, when we see ourselves as Gomer, when we see ourselves as the prodigal son who found himself in a pigsty, when we see ourselves as the unfaithful bride, then we ought to be moved to grieve and mourn over our sin. Our sin should humble us. Repentance should involve godly grief. This is much more than just regret over being caught in sin. Godly grief feels the weight of sin against a holy God. It sees the selfishness in my heart, and it sees my Savior standing in my place at the cross, and it should lead to sorrow over sin. James seems to have been addressing, in particular, the prideful heart that could even laugh over their sin and was unwilling to take it seriously. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Sometimes you should weep over your sin. So, brothers and sisters, again, are are you serious about your sin? Do you understand the weightiness of your sin, or do do you make light of it? James's words ought to make us search our hearts and ask some difficult questions of ourselves this morning. How seriously are you taking your sin? If you have been pursuing friendship with the world instead of friendship with God, it's time to turn back to God. It's time to repent, and that should involve godly grief over your sin. But notice as we approach verse 10, that's not where God leaves you. Having been humbled by your sin, remember that God gives grace to the humble, and God humbles you so that he can lift you up. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God's grace is for the humble. It's really quite simple. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and by doing so, you will experience God's grace poured out in your life. Followers of Christ are not supposed to exalt ourselves. We're supposed to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death. He humbled himself by becoming a man and suffering and dying a criminal's death in order to serve others. And he was raised from the dead and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules over all things. And we're to follow in his footsteps. As followers of Christ, we should be marked by the humility of Christ. And if we're marked by the humility of Christ, God will pour out his grace and God will transform us so that over time, we see less and less selfish ambition leading to fighting and quarreling with other people. We'll depend more and more upon our Heavenly Father. We'll walk in repentance. We'll grow closer to God and experience greater intimacy and fellowship with Him as we draw near to Him and as He draws near to us. One commentator summed up well what we see in this verse and in this passage. He said, When we try to exalt ourselves by relying on our abilities, our status, or our money, we meet with an inevitable failure, and God humbles us. It reminds us that we gain spiritual vitality and victory, not through our own strength or effort, but through giving ourselves completely to the Lord. And that is what God calls us to in this passage. Wholehearted devotion to him. Giving yourself completely to him. Brothers and sisters, are you living this way? When we do that, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, when we submit the entirety of our lives to him, he will give us grace and he will lift us up. As you all know, today marks the beginning of a new year. Park Hills, my prayer for you is that in the new year, in 2023, that you will devote yourselves to God. That you will be so devoted to God and to his people that it will be obvious even to a watching world that you are friends of God. As the bride of Christ, we shouldn't be marked by conflicts. We shouldn't be characterized by selfishness. We should be humble servants. We should be moved by the grace of God in our lives. We should be humbly serving God and serving others as we look to the one who laid down his life for his friends. And may you, Park Hills, be a people marked by your dependence upon God in prayer, daily crying out to him, daily drawing near to him, recognizing your neediness and asking for his grace. Praise God that he has redeemed you by his grace. He has washed away your sins by the blood of his son and he is at work changing your hearts and preparing you for the day when you will see your your savior face to face. May you press on knowing that your God is faithful. May you press on with increasingly undivided hearts hearts that are growing in greater love and devotion to God every day. Remember that God is jealous for you. Remember God's grace, how he sent his son to die for you. Remember, brothers and sisters, as you begin a new year, and I'll, I'll close with this, God wants your heart. So with his help, devote yourselves by his grace. Devote yourselves individually and corporately as a church to loving him and serving him and glorifying him because he is a faithful God and he is deserving of your all. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We confess to you this morning that we have wanted to be friends 
with this world. We have pursued the selfish desires of our hearts. Our loyalties have been divided at times. We have tried to be your friend, and we have tried to be a friend of this world at the same time. So, Father, would you forgive us? Father, thank you for your grace made available in Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Father, would you cause us to be a humble people? Father, would you cause us to run to you and to draw near to you, knowing that what we will find is grace in your presence? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. May it move us this morning to worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.